My name is Pastor John. If you're new with us today and you picked a great Sunday to be here, uh, we're continuing our series in 1 Peter. And uh, first thing I want to start with is bringing you on a little bit of a backtrack to the 1980s. And uh, so get your hair feathered back, get your jeans pinned, um, whatever you need. There was a couple songs in the 1980s that we liked, but now as I think about them, they're creepy. Okay, the first one's by the police, and it's um, every move you make, every breath you take, I will be watching you. You can get arrested for that. <laughs> that is the number one song. I think it was like, I can't remember what year it was, but that was the number one song. And we'd always sing every breath. We'd, that's just creepy, okay? Another one, there was this guy called Rockwell. He basically sounded like a Michael Jackson. And he had, I always feel like somebody's watching me. That was his song. I, always, I won't sing it because you should find somebody that can actually sing. But, and he had this song and it was like very popular. And, and it's like, why did we have songs like that of somebody watching us? And why were we celebrating it? And why were we pronouncing it? But you know what I want you to understand today? People are watching you. Now, not every move you make, not every breath you take, Okay, I hope not. If that happens, please call the police. Um, not the police who sang the song. That's kind of ironic. Okay, never mind. Um, just came to me. But the concept is, is people are watching your actions. People are watching what you're all about. And people want to know that somebody's not just talking something and then having nothing else with it. They, that they don't have an attitude of, I'm going to tell you what I think, but I'm not going to follow it. It's kind of like when you have somebody who's your financial advisor that cannot balance their own checkbook. Find a different financial advisor. If you find a mechanic that you see broken down the road all the time, find a different mechanic. And it's just little things like that, but people are watching us as Christians wanting to know who we really are. So for the, fast, the last few weeks, we've been studying uh, the letters of 1 Peter, and he's writing to Asia Minor, to a group of, uh, and we're at the end of the first section of letter, and we're starting the second section. And Peter, in the first section, has been talking about the fact that people have a secure destiny in Jesus Christ. We are elect exiles, he will talk about. We have an a inheritance in heaven as Christians that can never perish, spoil, or fade, and is kept in heaven for you. We are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation, he says in chapter 1, verse 5. And he says, We are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and God's special possession, in chapter 2, verse 9. And all of these things are telling us who we are in Christ. So when we talk about what I'm going to talk about today, understand that none of this has to do with who we are in Christ and our salvation. None of this says, okay, when you do these things, you will be saved. No, we are saved because of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter moves on to the next section. He's going to tell us how to live our lives as people who are secure in our faith. He's going to tell us what we're supposed to be. He's not going to say, hey, you know what? God gave you salvation. Do whatever you want. Okay? Just go out, let it go because you're saved. He is going to say that we have to live a certain way. And the next sections coming up after today are going to be, he's going to talk about how we're supposed to deal with governing authorities. 
And that's painful. Okay, when you have a governing authority that maybe you didn't vote for. Okay, or maybe you don't like. And everybody in America has had to deal with that, I think. And then he talks about how we should deal with our work. How we should deal with a boss that's unreasonable. He's going to use the word slavery here, which is the most unreasonable. But he's going to talk about how we do that. And he's going to talk about relationships between um, people and their spouse as another thing. But before he does that, he starts with chapter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. If you want to turn your Bibles or it will be on the screen. And he says this, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war, wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So in these verses, Peter is going to tell us how we are supposed to live in a culture that's opposite of Christianity in many respects. How we're supposed to live in a world where we don't fit in because of our Christian faith or we don't fit in because of our Christian values. He's going to say we can't separate from society. That's been tried before where people just said, forget it, we're going out to the desert. Now in northern Minnesota, we can do that. We can get out, in, not to the desert, but we can get out into the backwoods and, and be by ourselves and we could start our own little world out there. And we could go find new people and maybe kidnap them and bring them in. Probably not the best plan. I'm not saying we're going to do that. But sometimes churches become that way, where we have no connection to the outside world. And then the other thing is, we as the church become the outside world. And what he wants us to do is to have what was called, we talked about in the first uh, chapter, we talked about engaged alienation. We are in this world, but we are not of this world. We need to be engaged. We need to be a part of this world. We need to be in it, but we don't follow the rules of this world. We follow the rules of our holy nation, which is Jesus Christ. We follow his rules first. So, what is Peter going to tell us in these verses? How is he going to instruct us how to live? First of all, you must know who you are. And this comes back to what we were talking about. He starts with the word beloved. Now, when you say beloved to somebody, you usually don't do that to your, to your mailman. Write him a Christmas note, beloved mailman. Maybe you do love your mailman. I don't know. I mean, he could, be, he could be a great guy. But this is not a term you use. You use it when somebody means so much to you. Dearly beloved. You talk about this. It's a term of endearment and, and hope. And if we go back to 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, we should read this again. He just told them who they were. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you had received mercy. How much are you loved? God himself sent his son to earth, Jesus Christ, the son of God, God himself, and died on the cross for you. Are you loved? Yes. There is not one Christian that can ever say there is no one who calls me beloved. Jesus Christ calls you beloved. He died on the cross for you. While you were yet a sinner, his plan was to die on the cross for you. While you were still really arrogant and really difficult, 
Okay? While you were telling him, go away, Jesus, I don't want you, he died on the cross for you. How much are we beloved? And we need to understand that that is our status with God. And that helps us also when we understand how we're supposed to act because if we're beloved by God, he's going to love us no matter what. And one of the things, I think the lies that you will hear from our enemy, and it talks about a war going on right here, is you will sin and fall short of the glory of God, or you will, you will, have a, you will sin, and what will the enemy tell you? God is mad at you and hates you. And what does that cause us to do? I talk to so many people, they have sinned. What do they do? I'm going to stay home from church because I don't want to be there because, because people, I'll feel uncomfortable. No, this is where you come to find forgiveness and love. This is where you understand that you are beloved. And, uh, and it moves even further because if we're going to truly be like Christ, we truly must be the people who say to people that have sinned, you are welcome here. You're welcome to find forgiveness and we will not turn our back on you. We will not turn our back. And Peter is saying that to them. He is saying, beloved, and in some translations, like in the NIV, it says, my dear friends. He talks about the fact that the apostle Peter says, everybody else may hate you. And there are times, I'm pretty convinced in seventh grade, that there were times I was an awkward seventh grader and eighth grader. Pulled a little out of it in ninth grade. But I'm just saying, I was incredibly awkward and shy and didn't have a lot of friends. And I was like, does anybody love me? Does anybody care about me? I think we've all gone through those stages. Maybe we've had a relationship breakup. But we need to understand that God loves us. And if we're truly Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, we must love each other. We must show love to one another. We must show, and this place, if we are truly manifesting God's love, is going to change this place, and people are going to want to want a part of it. Because there is very little places where you can find unconditional love of Jesus Christ. The next thing he's going to say is, you are sojourners and exiles. And what's interesting about this, he's calling them exiles. And he's already used this term twice. He used it in the uh, first verse where he called them elect exiles. And then in 1 Peter 1.17, he calls them through your time of exile. So he calls them exiles. So what does that mean? Now, what he's trying to bring up is that you are a visitor. He's using terms that they would understand a visitor or you're part of God's holy nation first and then part, and then part of society second. There are going to be things that you don't understand or don't have a part of because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. You are going to be separated from your society. The phrase is found in Genesis 23, 4 where it talks about Abraham and he's trying to find a uh, a burial place for his wife and he's among the Hittites and he says I am a sojourner in exile will you please help me he knows that the, he is not part of this society but he asks for favor anyways and so why does Peter use this he's saying you're going to feel like this at times you're not going to fit in all the time you're not going to be the person that the world can depend on to be like them and so thus they are not going to like you you are a sojourner and an exile in this world. We are visitors in the land. Now, I just got back from Korea. I stuck out in Korea a little bit. Shocking. There are pictures of me. I mean, I was at this church. There's 8,000 people. 80,000 people total. We were at the first service. And we went on a visitation trip 
to see certain families in the church. And when I and we had an elder that went with us and drove us around. And then we went and visited this family. They're so thrilled to have us in their home. And then that Sunday morning, it must have been, we were at the first service, probably eight, 9,000 people at the service. Those people found me at the service. And I was like, man, they're really, oh, wait, I kind of stick out, don't I? <laughs> oh, here he is over there, you know. It wasn't that hard to find me. But I was excited that they came to find me. It was, it was fun that they came to find me, but I also found out I stick out. I don't do everything right. I don't bow at the right time. They gave us spaghetti and chopsticks. I mean, you can lose a lot of weight with that. I mean, it's in there. And everybody's laughing at me. People are trying to move my fingers. And you, know, and you feel like you're, you're not part of it. And people were as nice as they could be, but I was not part. I was not going to stay. I was just a sojourner through their land. They loved me being there, but I was not going to stay. But also understand this, that there are a lot of people, and I've been in countries before, where you're an American and you're not loved for it. People say, now when I was in Korea, I, I talked to people and they, they really were happy about America. Just so you know, it was a really fun thing to talk to them. And they said we were thankful of being their best ally and things like that. But there have been countries where being an American, there's negative stereotypes about it. You're just an evil American. You're just an evil American. Now, even when I was in Korea, they mentioned the fact that they're scared that they're going to become like us because we were the stereotype. They don't want to be like us and have their churches lose their next generation. They were very fear fearful of that. But think about every ethnic group that has come over to the United States. Our country has not exactly accepted them wholeheartedly. Every, especially Eastern Europeans, and when Asians started to come and all these other, there was all this no Irish allowed you know, if you don't speak, you know, and the whole concept of if you had a dialect or anything like that. And so everybody understands what it's like to be the other. Or if you've been the new kid that's moved to a new place, you understand what it's like to be the other. And what he's trying to say is, you are not going to be always a part of this society. And foreigners in the ancient world did not necessarily participate in their society. They were part of it, but they are always on the, on the fringe. They are always on the outside. Now understand that this is going to change country to country, situation to situation, but we have to be ready for it. And the next thing he says is abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now he says, you're sojourners, you're exiles. You have to be ready to be different. You are loved by God, but he says, he sets up with the word, I urge you. This is a very strong statement. He is saying this is something that is vitally important that you must do. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. This is the central concern for the whole section here. It is going to be a twofold urging. First of all, he's going to say in a negative sense, abstain. And then he's going to say how you're supposed to live in a certain way in a positive sense. And it's all in relation to our mission as Christians. Understand the fact that I'm about to say. This has nothing to do with our actually being saved or not saved. Although if we continue in sin, the Bible is very clear that we can threaten our salvation. But what he's talking about, you're not going to earn your salvation here. It's important to understand, this is how you live because you are a child of God. He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. You know what the passions of the flesh are? The things that come naturally. The things that just flow. 
The things that just, the flesh wants you to do bad things. Okay? We have a sinful nature in us, and our body has lusts. It's the term here is lust, and we sometimes think of it as sexual desires, and that is true in this. Our sexual desires, if not kept in check, will just go in the wrong direction. They, they mean, they will just naturally, you know, the whole concept of born this way, we are born into sin. We are born with sinful desires. We have to abstain from the desires that we have. We can't just say it, it feels good, do it, because things that we think are right are not right. Any uncurbed desire, what is natural in us? D.L. Moody put it this way, I have more trouble, now D.L. Moody is, if you're in Moody Bible Institute, a uh, great evangelist in the early 20th century, he said, I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than any man I know. He just says, my own desires it's not them, it's me. I have desires to do what is wrong. I have desires when somebody comes up to me and I have to tell them the truth and the, tr- and the lie is easier. My natural desire is the lie. My natural desire is to gossip. My natural desire is to lose my temper. That is how I am made. That is what the sin in my life has changed me into. But the, the, we need to fight the battle against it. Um. Another passion that we have that he's talking about here is the one that is so strong in all of us. From the moment we are little, the passion to be accepted. Think about it. What's some of the, sometimes the toughest thing about being a Christian is you're not going to be accepted by everybody. Because if you live in this world, especially in a, in a postmodern sense, you're supposed to just say, everybody's fine, everybody has their own path, Everybody can do whatever they want. No, that's all hug. Okay? Nobody can say they're right. Nobody can say they're wrong. There is no absolute truth. And our desire is to fit into that society. But we have to be careful that we don't allow, and there's nothing wrong with fitting in. I don't think as Christians we should act weird. Now I'm going to talk about that a lot. There's, a, there's some people who said, we shouldn't be like our society, so let's dress weird and act weird. Okay? No. All right? There, that should, that's not what we're supposed to do. But understand that we have to have this passion to be accepted, kept under control. And the next term he talks about is there's a war going on against your soul. There's a war happening inside of you. Now, again, in a Western society, we don't like to talk about spiritual warfare, about demonology and things like that. We just went through Halloween where people talk about demons and things like that, but they say, oh, it's just for fun and all that. But and then now we need to understand that there is a war going on for your soul every day. A war. And when you understand that, you understand that a war is not going to be easy. Anybody who's ever been part of a war will tell you that it's, that it's difficult and hard to do. And it's against your soul, which means your whole being. It's not just against one little part of you. Against every part of you, the enemy is attacking you. And he can, he's going to try to destroy anything that he can. He wants to destroy you, get you addicted to drugs, which is going to destroy your body as well as your mind, as well as your heart. He wants to get you, uh, you know, as a lying, I think is one of the biggest things, being an untruthful person so that your, your friends can't depend on you anymore and you start to lose relationships. The war is going on on every part of your body. And it's a daily battle, but you need to understand this fact. It is not by might, 
nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord, that you will win this. Now, when it says you must wage the battle every day, you must understand that the battle is waged by the Holy Spirit that is within you. And you, although when I say that, it's not like, okay, Holy Spirit, I'm just going to sit here and do this. Okay, Holy Spirit, well, I sinned today. You know what? Holy Spirit really blew it because he wasn't waging the war for me. Kind of a whiny, complainy thing. It is us in conjunction with the Holy Spirit. When we go to school, when we go to work, we need to say when we feel the situation coming on, we feel the urges to do what is wrong, we feel the urge to gossip, which is such a strong thing for all of us, we need to say, Holy Spirit, help me. Holy Spirit, come into me right now. If we're dealing with addiction, we're dealing with lust, we're dealing with all this, we, we, we deal with all these things, we need to say, Holy Spirit, help me through this. But understand that we need to fight this battle and it's a daily battle. The next thing, keep your conduct honorable. Now, honorable is a term that means not just virtue, but basically beauty, winsomeness, and that which is admirable. We need to understand, he's going to talk about the fact that you need to keep your honor clean in front of the Gentiles. If you read the whole of chapter 12, this is or verse 12, he's going to talk about the fact that Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You need to understand what it means that we need to keep our, ourselves at the highest standards that we can as a witness to others. But he also brings in that term. He says, you are going to have people say things against you that are wrong. Now Tacitus, and if you've studied Roman history, Tacitus is one of the biggest historians. He says Christians, and this is his claim about them, were guilty of a sullen hatred of the human race. That's not even close to an accurate representation of who we are and who the early church was. But see, from his point of view, because they weren't good Roman citizens, because they didn't follow Rome, they were haters of the human race. Another thing that was brought up against Christians, and one of my favorites, is that Christians were cannibals. Why did they think that? Communion. They thought, and rumors were spread about Christians, that Christians were slicing Jesus up and eating him and drinking his blood. And they said, they're cannibals. So you can hear the gossip chain going. You could hear, they're different, they're different. They're different. Thus, there must, let's make up things about them. They called them atheists. One of my favorite things, Christians were called atheists because they said, where's your God? You don't have a God, so thus you must not worship anything. One of my favorite things, we were accused of being atheists. But there was all kinds of things that were said about Christians. And if you study church history, you can just go on and on about this where there were these false claims made against them that you can't be trusted if you're a Christian. You can't be this. And it's important that we understand that there are these Gentiles, which are people outside the Christian faith, are going to say things about Christians that aren't true. They're going to say things because they're uncomfortable with the way you know, Christianity makes them feel. And because you're different, we know that the different person usually is the person who is picked on. That's just the way it works. It's not right. I'm not saying that's a good thing, but it's the way that it is. So we need to understand that we are supposed to, to look for a better path 
and live our conduct honorable, which is in contrast to 1 Peter 1.18, not in contrast, or the old ways, which was the feudal ways that you inherited from your forefathers. Now, sometimes when you study your forefathers, you need to learn some things from them, like what not to do. Okay? It's good to look at your forefathers, your parents, whatever, and say, that's some good stuff. And look at them and say, that's some bad stuff. The feudal ways that we inherited, we've talked about this so many times, you are not destined for something because your last name is something. You are not destined because you grew up somewhere. You're not destined because of something you've done in the past. You're destined because of what Jesus Christ has done for you. And you are not stuck with the feudal ways of your forefathers. Understand that, first of all, that God is watching you. We talked about somebody watching you. In Peter already earlier talked about in the first chapter that we have to have a fear of God because God is watching us always. A good fear, not a scary fear, but the fact that God in heaven who knows what's best for us and punishes those who are evil is watching us. And when God is watching us, we behave better. I've talked about this. Having the rearview mirror with the state patrol in the rearview mirror causes you to go the speed limit. You're amazing. That 55 is perfect maybe 54 just to make sure okay we all are great citizens at that point but it's important to understand that god is watching us and that should cause us the same thing not because and that state patrol is not there to to he wants us to go that speed limit he wants us to not to not bother with us he wants us to be good so it's important that we understand that but we need to stay in high standards of god because it's important to our witness to society. It's important to what people see us. And you know, here's the ironic part. It was true in Peter's day and it's still true today. Do you know what some of the highest um, values are? The word abstain that Peter uses here is the exact word that Plato used. And Plato was a great Greek philosopher. And Plato used, you should not have unrestrained indulgence. So what he is trying to say is, just like Greeks say they are, you should be what they say they, they are. In other words, there are people who say, I think people should be honest. And at the same time, they're dishonest. I think people should not gossip. But did you hear about that person? I think people should live a certain way, but they do the exact opposite. So the Greek society at this time, self-control was highly valued by the Greek community and philosophers. They didn't live that way. They don't, he's saying, be what the, what the values of these philosophers say they're supposed to be. You should be the honest ones. One of the greatest tributes of the Christian church is the fact that they got to be so honest at a certain point that pagans would come and have their t- cases tried in the Christian church because they couldn't trust the judges outside the Christian church, even though they didn't believe in Jesus. But they trusted him. And it's important to understand that we live these standards for the sake of others. And we do this for two reasons. First of all, that we show their claims against us to be false. When people make false claims, that person is dishonest. I like to ask the question, can you tell me how they are dishonest? Well, I just don't like them. Now I get it. Okay? It can be changed from, but you know what? If people accuse you of being dishonest, be honest. If people make false claims about you, be what God has called you to be. Be the standards that people in the society, people in the society admire honesty. 
They admire people that don't gossip. They admire people that have marriages that stay together. They admire these things. They want to see us do this. They don't see anybody doing it. They admire it. They say that it's good, but they don't do it. And when we do it, we're going to show who Jesus Christ is. Remember, and the other thing that's important is that we're going to lead to people's salvation. Now it says right here in verse 12 again, it's important to understand that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. There's a lot of argument what that day of visitation is. It's important to understand what we think. There's two different things. One is the end when Christ returns, and one is the day that they become to know Jesus Christ. And I think both of these are true at this time. But our goal in our life to live a holy life is to see other people come to know Jesus Christ. We want to see, you know what? I watched you every day. I saw that you were not perfect, but I saw that you were trying to live for Jesus Christ. I want to be that. And you can, they can glorify God because of the witness we have made. Now you may say, I'm not good at witnessing. I'm not good with the four spiritual truths. I don't have the preaching skills. I can't do all that. Your life can be the greatest witness tool in your community. You need to be known as the person who can be depended on. You need to be known as the person who lives life differently. And you know what? It's going to make an impact. It's going to cause some friction, but you know what? There's going to be people that glorify God because you have glorified God in your, in your life. If you're the one employee at work that doesn't steal, if you're the employee at work, how about this one, that works the actual amount of time that you're there. I struggled with that when I was, I tell you what, when I was in retail, I was like, I have to work? This, I'm so bored. I don't know if anybody's ever done this. But, and, but you know what? As a Christian, they told us this when we were at Bible colleges, your witness is you go to work and actually work. Because not everybody does that. I've talked to many employers, and they're like, you actually work the whole time you're here? Wow! Okay, they are just like, what is it about you? Well, let me tell you about Jesus Christ. It's, it, it is everything that we do can be a part of this. The, and think of the example of Jesus. First of all, what he told us. He says in the same way, in Matthew five sixteen, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is important to understand. It's not that they look at you and say how wonderful you are. It's that they look at you and say, God is good. Because people that know me here in town since I grew up here, they know that it must be God. Okay, not that I was a horrible person, but they say, we look at your classmates. We look at all the things. There's something different about you. You know what it is? It's not how great I am, it's how great God is. And everything about it gives glory to Him. Because without God, I would be in the same state as all of them. I'd be in the same state as all the Gentiles and the pagans who are struggling with this. It's also important to understand the example of Jesus Christ. And one example I, I thought of was the example of Jesus Christ on the cross. When Jesus Christ is being crucified, for a most trumped-up charge, I mean, you talk about injustice against Roman law, against Jewish law. He is being, everything about it is wrong. What does Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He doesn't scream, that's my rights, you can't do this. And 
You know, I can imagine that's what they heard on the cross. Could you imagine the centurions, what they heard as people were being crucified? Probably every swear word in the book, every this, you, this, that. I mean, and what did Jesus say? He forgave them. And what did, the centur- what did the Roman guards say as he died? Surely this is the Son of God. He said something's different about him. Something makes him different. I want to know what that is. We don't know what happened to this Roman guard, but Jesus Christ showed us the way. If he can die on the cross on a trumped-up charge, we can accept the fact that sometimes people are going to do wrong things to us. And we need to accept the fact and be gracious about it and understand how to act. Now I'm going to share you, uh, uh, with you a story to close. And I want to tell you this. I, I, I read this story to my wife, Erica, and she said, not true. She gave me a not true. And I had to look it up because it sounds so remarkable that it can't be true. So I had to research it because that's, I, have to, I had to research it. And I found it in the original book that it came from, published by Oxford Press. I, I did my diligence as a doctoral student trying to figure out, you know, this is what it is. But here's the story. A few years ago, Chinese officials became fed up with the high rates of crime and a drug addiction in the Yunnan province. The op- their opium addiction had made them weak and sick. Then they'd go to one of their priests who required animal sacrifices of such extravagance that people became poor. And because they were so poor, they stole from each other and law and order deteriorated. It was a vicious cycle that no amount of government propaganda could break. Then they noticed that in some villages, the people were prosperous and peace-loving. There was no drug problem or any stealing or social order problems. Households had a plentiful supply of pigs, oxen, and chickens. So they commissioned a survey to find out what they were, how they were different. To their astonishment, they discovered that the key factor was that these villages had a majority of Christians. Chinese officials launched a daring experiment in 1998. They sponsored Christians to go into the troubled villages and share their faith. The Chinese sponsored... No, it's, it's, they started picking out the worst village, which had 250, 240 people with 107 of them were addicted to opium. Christians were bussed into the village at government expense, and the villagers were herded together by the police and made to listen to the testimonies of the Christians. A year later, there were 17 converts in the village, and they began to prosper because they stopped spending money on drugs. Eight of the 17 converts even had enough to own their own sewing machines and start a small business. By 2002, 83 of the villagers were Christians, and the prosperity spread. The government officials said, we are delighted with the results and have been extending the tactic to many other villages since that. That is called letting your light shine. The Chinese government is not a big fan of Christianity. But you know what they saw? These guys are doing all right. And see, people were coming to Jesus Christ using the Chinese officials. I think God in heaven likes to do things like this. He likes to use different things. He goes, China, they got some money. We'll use them. We'll have them bus our missionaries around. It'll be cheaper. Okay? And, but you know what? The whole story comes back to people living for Jesus Christ. People are watching, 
and they see that your life is different, that you have hope when you have struggles in your life. doesn't mean you don't have struggles. You have hope during those times. When you suffer loss, you have hope. You have hope at all times. You have Jesus Christ in your life. And you live differently than the world. You don't just follow your fleshly desires. You don't just follow after all of them. You live like God has called you to live. And you know what? It's going to make an impact in your town. It's going to make an impact in your school. It's going to make an impact in your friends. And they're going to glorify God and talk about the fact that we were visited by Jesus Christ. Why don't you stand with me right now? For our prayer ministers could come forward. If you're here today, we believe in prayer. Earlier we had a prayer. And in that prayer... Uh, you had a chance to raise your hand and be prayed for. We have prayer ministers available after every service, and the opportunity is for you to come and pray with them about any need that you have. If you're here in the need of healing, if you're in need of financial need, God is here to minister to your needs. But also understand, if you're here today and you've not accepted Jesus Christ, you've not made Him the Master and Savior of your life, you've not asked Him for forgiveness of your sins, understand that you have the opportunity today and now is the day of salvation. If you'd like to be a follower of Jesus Christ, come and talk to one of our prayer ministers. But for everybody else who's here, I just want to give you this thing. Abstain and follow God's plan. Follow His plan. Keep your conduct honorable. Abstain from the desires of the flesh. Understand that if God tells you to do something, guess what? He'll help you do it. He doesn't tell you to do things that he's not going to help you do. Keep yourself honorable in our society. Why? So that others might come to know Jesus Christ. Because somebody's watching you. People are watching. And you know why? They're looking for a better way. And we have it in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you today for your blessings. We thank you, God, that we are secure in our salvation in you that you have set us on a path, God, of salvation because of your mercy, not because of anything we have done, but because of your mercy. And because of that, God, we have now the opportunity as Christians to live a life for the sake of others. We are not slaves to sin anymore, God. We are free to live, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We don't have to follow every desire that we have. We don't have to follow with ways that have been inherited or whatever they've come into our lives, God. We don't have to follow those desires because we have hope in you. And I pray right now that you will help us. And I pray, God, that this place will be filled with new people looking for Jesus Christ. And we will give them an example of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And they will glorify God because, God, that is our desire as a church to see life's change. Lord, let us be a church that expands with new believers. We ask this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our prayer ministers are available. Otherwise, you're dismissed.